0: If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, these incisive words of Jesus. And today we'll be in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Uh, None of us likes to face our weaknesses and our failures, which means that when we are confronted with the ways in which we have fallen short, we often do everything we can to excuse our behavior, to minimize our sins, or to, to find a way to prove ourselves faultless. One way we might we might do this is by changing the rules. Kids like to do this when they're, they're playing a game and things sort of start to go downhill for them. Uh, in one of my favorite Calvin and Hobbes comics, Calvin and his buddy Hobbes are, are playing football. At least with, that's what they begin playing. Uh, The first few frames show you what I mean. Hopefully, these are going to show up on the video for you. But in the beginning, Hobbs says, uh, the center snaps the ball to the quarterback. No, he doesn't, says Calvin. He doesn't? No, secretly, he's the quarterback for the other team. He keeps the ball. A traitor. Calvin breaks for the goal. Wee, he's at the 30, the 20, the 10. Nobody can catch him. Nobody wants to. You're running towards your own goal. And on and on, the comic descends into hilarious madness. They continue to change the rules in their own favor. A similar response to having our weaknesses exposed could be not to to change the rules, but to lower the standards. An entire class might fail a test, so the teacher changes the requirements so that everyone passes. An employer is maybe looking for a certain set of qualifications in an employee, but no one who applies seems to, to meet those standards. And so she has to lower the bar for what she is looking for. As we wade more deeply into the Sermon on the Mount, we find that much of what Jesus was correcting was the false religion of his day. He was was pushing back against the legalism and the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees who claimed to be teachers and keepers of the law. But we find that rather than truly keeping the law, they often seem to, to change the law and lower its standards. In fact, we might say that they changed the law by lowering its standards. And they're not the only ones. We can be just as self-deceived and just as self-protecting in the way that we give our attention to God's law. And and as Jesus begins with the, the subject of anger here in these verses that we're going to look at, we're all brought face to face with our weakness. As we think back over this previous week, it's not hard to remember times when we lost our temper or when we had an outburst of anger. Um, it, it's, not, it's not hard to come up with uh, those instances, but it's also not hard to come up with excuses for our anger. We're all living in close quarters, we might say. We're in the middle of a pandemic, I'm, I'm stressed, or he started it, or she yelled much louder than I did. Faced with our weaknesses, we want to change the rules or we want to lower the standards and while we can admit that there are, that that situations can be difficult we also can recognize that no one ever forces us to sin which is why jesus calls us not to excuse our anger not not to explain it away not to change the rules or lower the standard of righteousness to justify our sin rather in in light of jesus having fulfilled the law and therefore Calling we as his followers to give it our full attention. Matthew 5, 21 through 26 speaks this word to us. It says, acknowledge that all anger is dangerous to our souls and seek to deal with it immediately. Acknowledge that all anger is dangerous to our souls and seek to deal with it immediately. Don't excuse it. Don't ignore it. Acknowledge it and deal with it. With that in mind, let's read Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hellfire. Acknowledge that all anger is dangerous to our souls and seek to deal with it immediately. Now, before we really dive into these verses in particular, a bit more background, I think, could be helpful. Uh, having made it very clear in verses 17 through 20 that he that he had come to fulfill the law, not to, to do away with it, Jesus explains how his fulfillment of the law reveals its true intentions and extent. He does this through six examples that we find in verses 21 through 48, the first here having to do with anger. I don't know that Jesus intended for these to be exhaustive examples. Um, In other words, while these statements are important because they're recorded for us here in the scriptures, they also have a way of simply opening the door so that we can see how the righteousness of the kingdom flushes itself out in God's law. Because Jesus has not given us a, a new law. He is opening our eyes to see the heart of all God's laws. The, the pattern of the six illustrations in, in verses 21 through 48 is virtually the same. It's easy to spot. Uh, Jesus introduces an Old Testament law with the words, You have heard it said. And then he comments on the law with the authoritative words, But I say to you. On the surface, it sounds like Jesus is, is contradicting the Old Testament law, which is why it's, it's so important to be clear on the fact that he says uh, that he says in, in verses uh, 17 through 20 that his teaching and his life are not in contradiction to the law, but they are a fulfillment of it. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington is helpful. He says, these six examples then are not antitheses, but exegesis. They are illustrations that interpret or exegete both the Old Testament teachings and Jesus' words together showing how the fulfillment, not abolishment, of 5, 17 through 20 is worked out. So again, Jesus is not contradicting the law. He is fulfilling it. His life and his words interpret its core meaning and intent. It's also helpful to see that, that while Jesus does quote the laws Of the Old Testament he also seems to be referencing not simply the the law as stated in the scriptures but also the way that the religious elites of his day interpreted those laws I think this is most clear in the sixth example in in Matthew 5 43 this is what Jesus says you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy now the law certainly does say that we are to to love our neighbor but it doesn't say that we're supposed to hate our enemy That was simply probably an additional interpretation added on by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to sort of justify their behavior. And so Jesus's authoritative interpretation and exegesis of the law cuts against the grain of the teachers of the day. Jesus is not contradicting the law. He he is contradicting a faulty interpretation and application of the law. He, He is fulfilling the law and by interpreting it in light of its original intention. This all kind of leads us into three sort of overarching ideas that I want us to see as we walk through these six illustrations, the first one today and then the the following one in the weeks to come. So six overarching ideas, or I'm sorry, three overarching ideas about these six illustrations. Uh, The first one, the righteousness of the kingdom is deeper. The righteousness of the kingdom is deeper meaning it's deeper than surface obedience to a stated law Uh, rt france says of jesus's instruction compared to the law as stated it is in each case more demanding more far-reaching in its application more at variance with the ethics of man without god now to say that it is deeper is not to say that in the old testament god was simply concerned with with outward surface obedience god has always been concerned that we serve him not with religious formalism but with with heart devotion to say that it's deeper than is to say that it's to say that the righteousness of the kingdom is deeper than false and faulty interpretations of the law we'll see the depth more in a moment but let's also note that all these six these six statements show us second that the righteousness of the kingdom is practical. The righteousness of the kingdom is practical. The law in the hands of the Pharisees became a burden that made life a constant uphill battle to nowhere. They were concerned with with and in the words of Jesus, they would they would strain out a gnat but they would f- swallow a camel in contrast everything that jesus says and instructs his followers in is grounded in real life his commands are not religious practices that that we can segment off into some part of our our lives or that are performed only in temples rather they they are they are life invading words that meet us in the nitty-gritty of our everyday lives there is there is not a 24-hour period that goes by where we are not for, faced with at least one of these illustrations from chapter five. And in some days we're faced with all six, it would seem. So the righteousness of the kingdom is deeper. The righteousness of the kingdom is practical. And finally, the righteousness of the kingdom glorifies Jesus. The righteousness of the kingdom glorifies Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is honored here as the authoritative lawgiver and the divine law fulfiller. But we also see that the Old Testament law and the righteousness that Jesus lays out here, they all end in pointing us to Christ. As we think about this, consider the the way that we're driven to Jesus by the law in light of what many people would call the the three uses of the law. Kids, you might want to draw a picture here at some point or, or a few pictures. Uh, I've got three pictures to go with each of these uses. Adults, you can draw two if you would like to. Um, the first is that the law is a mirror. The law is a mirror. The, the law reflects God's perfect righteousness and power, and it reveals also our sinfulness and our weakness. Paul speaks about this in Romans 7, and James refers to the word as a, as a mirror. So the law is a mirror. Second, the law is offense. The, the law restrains evil in our world. It does not deal with the issue of sin completely, but it does promote justice and righteousness in our society. And like a fence at the edge of a cliff, it keeps society from from complete ruin and destruction. And third, the the law is a path. The, The law lays before us the path of pleasing God and pursuing joy through walking in obedience to God's ways. The law is a mirror to reflect our sinfulness and reveal God's righteousness. It's, it's a fence to promote good in society at large. And it's a path that shows us the way of pleasing God and seeking joy. And all three of these uses lead us to a fourth use of the law, namely that it's an arrow that points us to Christ. Think about that idea that, that the law is an arrow that points us to Christ in light of those other three uses of, of the law. So the law is a mirror. And Christ reflects God's perfect righteousness to us in his life and perfection, whereby he fulfilled the law. And as we consider his words and his actions, our our sinfulness is revealed in comparison to him. In Jesus, we see that our only hope of salvation is, is not to trust in our law keeping, but rather to confess our law breaking and to rest in Christ, who has paid the penalty for our failure and who gives us the perfection of his obedience. We might also see that the way that the law restrains evil like offense, yet we know that that evil still exists and our hearts turn towards Christ as we long for him to reign as the perfect king in the coming kingdom where righteousness fills the earth. And we're pointed to Christ also as as, as the one who shows us the path that we are to walk on. We, we want to love the law and walk in the ways of, of the law, just as Jesus, our older brother, has. We long to emulate him, not as a means of salvation, but because we have been brought into his family and we've been given his spirit. If we use the law the way the Pharisees did, it will lead to pride. But if we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, we find that the law points us to Christ and it glorifies him and him alone. Well, enough introduction. Let's get into verses 21 through 26. And as we do, we see the the path that Jesus has laid out for us to follow. Uh, For those of us who have been redeemed by him, this is the way we walk in ways that would would please God in in the way that brings us joy. And then we also see how Jesus fulfills and reflects the law to us. So let's just call this the righteous path of rejecting anger. This is the illustration. Jesus is telling us about the righteous path of rejecting anger. In verse 13, In verse 21, he he quotes the clear law found in the Sixth Commandment of Exodus chapter 20 and elsewhere, which many of us know simply as thou shalt not kill. It's a prohibition against murder, uh, the killing of another person out of anger or spite or any other sinful motivation. We're not going to get into the topic right now of of killing someone out of self-defense or in war, except to say that this law specifically has to do with taking the life of another human being because of selfishness or, or anger. Um, from the beginning, God has called has called us to place a high value on every life created in the image of God. As early as Genesis 9:5 through 6, the Lord says to Moa and to to, Moa, to Noah, "And surely I will require the life of any man or beast by whose hand your lifeblood is shed." I will demand an accounting for anyone who takes the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed. For in his own image, God has made mankind. As we think about valuing life in the midst of this current pandemic that we're in, it's interesting to see how valuing life has shown up in our society as we all make sacrifices in this worldwide effort to protect life especially the lives of those who are older and more vulnerable. We can celebrate this, I think, as an evidence of God's common grace in our world. And yet there's also a tragic irony here. We we see the tragic irony of, of, of closing businesses so that we can save lives while simultaneously allowing abortion clinics to remain open so that unborn lives can be taken. While we are all rightly making inconvenient personal sacrifices to protect fellow human beings... Other people are being told to take the life of an unborn child because of the inconvenience that that baby might cause them. It's ironic. It's tragically ironic. But we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised, brothers and sisters. Confusion and deception abounds in our world, even in the midst of God's common grace. And we as followers of Christ are called to be those who protect all lives, regardless of age, age race, ethnicity, mental capacity, economic value, or any other factor. Every person is created in God's image and valuable, and to kill anyone or to count a person's life as less valuable than our personal goals or our financial security or anything else is to disregard God's image in them, and therefore is to disregard God himself. But as we would value life, we show forth the light of God in this world. It's this this conviction of the value of all people that's at the core of the command to to not murder. On the surface, the the command to not murder is is very grave. To take someone else's life is one of the worst things that that I imagine we could do in this world. But on the other hand, we could also say that if the standard of the the law is simply not to murder, while while that is a, a needed law, it's also one that I imagine that most of us, and even the majority of the world, have kept not many of us are murderers. And the Pharisees held up this prohibition against murder in part because they too were not murderers. But the issue, says Jesus, is not is, is that not murdering is not all that the sixth commandment is speaking about. And if we make the, that command only about the taking of someone's physical life, then we, then we lower the bar of what God intended by it. The path Jesus calls us down is not simply to not murder other people. Rather, he shows that the deeper, heart-focused intent of the Sixth Commandment is to root out the kind of anger and pride that overflows in not simply the extreme act of of murder, but even in everyday insults. The connection we find here is is that murder, anger towards other people, and insults all have the same root of devaluing a person created in the image of God and therefore disregarding God himself. That attitude and all the, the actions and words that, that come from it, Jesus says that none of them have any place in God's kingdom. Verse 22 gives us three prohibitions, which essentially boil down that they focus on anger towards another person and insults directed towards them. Anger and insults, that's, that's what we're not supposed to do. The anger here is obviously not a reference to righteous anger. And I would say that we should be very slow to think that our anger in most circumstances is righteous anger. Usually our anger towards another person is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. John Stott summarizes it well when he says that Jesus is speaking of unrighteous anger, the anger of pride, vanity, hatred, malice, and revenge. It's the unrighteous anger we feel when someone frustrates our plans when they cut us off in traffic on purpose or when they mistakenly spill milk on the dinner table it's what we feel when someone says something rude or belittling to us it's the frustration we feel towards others it's it's the hatred we have towards those who oppose our way of thinking or or living this unrighteous anger could could lead us to to physical violence and surely striking another person in anger whether it's to to kill them or not is part of what's co- of what this command prohibits. If your anger is finding itself expressed in physical violence or even threats of physical violence, that's something that needs to be addressed. Don't think that just because you're not murdering someone that that's okay. However, our anger may not lead to to physical violence. It could lead to verbal violence, to, to insults, which are hatred translated into words rather than into actions. And Jesus considers those words to be just as bad, to be a breaking of the sixth commandment. He mentions the words Raka, which essentially means empty, maybe empty headed, something like that. And, and more close to moron, but maybe closer to, to fool. We could delve down deep into those words, but the prohibition doesn't is not just against those words, but it's, it's against the meaning of person in any way. On any insult or rude remark or slight is what Jesus has in mind. Biting sarcasm, cheap shots. One commentator simplifies it this way He says, Raka expresses contempt for a man's head. You stupid. More expresses contempt for his heart and character. You scoundrel. And now, what we find is that suddenly, in just a few words, We who thought the command to not murder was one that we had no issue with keeping. We find that our anger and our insults have made us guilty before God. The law has done what it's supposed to do when it's rightly read and not watered down. It has revealed our sinfulness. And the deeper we dig into our own hearts, the more we will see how far the roots of anger go and how often we insult others. Jesus is clear that judgment will come on those not only who murder but on those who are angry and who insult others as we said that the law that that the law is a offense that keeps people from complete anarchy laws against murder in some ways keep people from murdering others because they know there's going to be a judgment but other than slander or libel our earthly courts don't don't prosecute people for anger in their hearts or insults whispered under their breath, or even insults shouted out loud. But such things will be judged in the courtroom of God. Jesus says in Matthew 12:36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Insults included. Texts and Facebook posts and tweets included. Private conversations included. All speech included. And in light of the reality that anger and insults will be judged by God, Jesus then gives us two applications. Those applications are found in verses 23 through 24 is the first one, and then 25 and 26 is the second application of these things. The first one has to do with worship, and the other has to do with the realm of business or the courts. One has to do with with a brother, and another has to do with an enemy of sorts. In both, though, there's a conflict. And in both, the instruction from Jesus is to take immediate action to make the relationship right. Immediate action to make the relationship right. Note that these two applications are not centered on how we might perfectly keep this command. Jesus' application doesn't begin, here's how to never lose your temper ever again. Or, Here are two steps that will help guard you from insulting others. Rather, he's offering instruction on how to make peace when situations of relational strife show up because he knows they're going to. The application of leaving your offering at the altar and making things right with someone who has something against you hits hard at false religion. Jesus makes it clear that pure religion has little to do with offerings or or rituals. It's about love for God And love for neighbor. These things are are more important than outward religious practices. As we seek to apply that, we we might think that it applies to us specifically in attending church or maybe in in taking the Lord's Supper. And we should be in right relationship with others, certainly, when we gather to to worship. Yet we also know that, that all of life is worship. We know that our lives are to be an offering to God. And so the application would in fact be to say that whenever we realize that we have broken relationships, we need to do all that we can as quickly as we can to make things right. When there's something broken between us and another person, we need to do everything we can as quickly as we can to make things right. Our lives are to be marked by confession and repentance. Ephesians four twenty six through 27, gets, gives us a, a practical thought and also a sober warning in these things. Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He's telling us to, to deal with our anger each day or we risk the influence of the evil one influencing our, our heart. We know that with, with every rising sun, there's going to be new opportunities to seek the forgiveness of others, to be reconciled, as Jesus says, because we will have gotten angry and we will have insulted others. I saw something helpful on Twitter this week from Tish Warren. She said, repentance is not usually a moment wrought in high drama. It is the steady drumbeat of a life in Christ and therefore a day in Christ. During COVID, this is bearing down on me. Repent often, apologize to people, keep short accounts. We're having to practice reconciliation here about every 30 minutes on some days. It's exhausting, but in repentance and rest is our strength. Lean into confession and prayer. Maybe you can relate in some ways and be encouraged to lean into confession and prayer. I think this gets at what Jesus is saying and instructing us in, that we're to avoid unrighteous anger and we're to avoid insults towards other human beings created in God's image. But when we inevitably fail, we should be the first ones to admit our sin. We should be the first ones to seek reconciliation. We're to keep short records. Sisters and brothers, as As children of the God who has taken the initiative to be reconciled to us, we are called to be those who immediately seek reconciliation with others. And when we do, as Jesus said earlier, people will see our good works and they will glorify our Father in heaven. There's a second example. The one was from the the temple or from the place of worship. Uh, The second seems to be, uh, have, have to do more with um, the realm of business. It's, it's, it's unique. It even has a sort of legal nature to it. And I think the uniqueness of it almost hints at the idea that a conflict w- that if we have conflict with any person, we need to deal with it as quickly as possible. that there's, there's no one that we can sort of write off as, as undeserving of our or as deserving of our, our wrath or deserving of our insults or undeserving of our forgiveness, that everyone we need to approach in the same way. But this example's emphasis on enduring judgment also takes us, I think, from earthly relationships to our relationship with God. It drives us to see that we must settle our accounts not only with, with other human beings created in God's image, but also with God himself. Because if we do not, eternal punishment is what awaits us. So how can we settle our accounts with God? We settle our accounts with God by setting ourselves in Christ. And how do we set ourselves in Christ? Through repentance and faith. Again, we start to see how the great purpose of the law is to point us to Christ. Because Jesus not only teaches this stuff, he lives it. He certainly never murdered another person. And in fact, he never hated someone or was unrighteously angry with them. He never insulted or degraded another human being. On the contrary, he was the victim of unrighteous anger and of vicious insults. He was reviled and mocked, but he didn't return those insults. And he was murdered. He was murdered by these very people who taught against murder. In his life and in his death, he shows us the path that we are to walk. But he also makes it possible for us to settle our accounts with the Father. When we receive the message of the gospel, that's what we do. We, we confess and we repent and we trust in Jesus for salvation. And, and when we too as as followers of Jesus when we sin against others, we also confess we, to God we, we, we know that we have degraded another person created in God's image we have and in so doing we've, we've belittled God and so we confess our sins to God and then we confess our sins to others and seek reconciliation. Well hopefully my, my hope is you can see a little bit more clearly this righteous path of Of rejecting anger and it it goes deep the more I meditate on it the deeper it gets and the more I see my own anger my own uh, tendency to to disregard people created in God's image it's something to continue to meditate on this path that we're called down is it, it starts by first acknowledging that all anger is dangerous to our souls and then we need to seek to deal with it immediately to recognize the danger that anger has in our hearts and therefore to deal with it as quickly as possible Uh, to close I thought we might ask though what's the positive side of the command to not be angry with our brother or sister in in Christ What's, what's the opposite of not insulting others what's the opposite of devaluing someone created in God's image Well, of course it's to love them which is no surprise is it because love is the fulfillment of the law. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in so doing, we love God by not devaluing those created in his, in his image. And when we love others as Christ has loved us and in the power that he gives us, we will avoid anger and insults, not to mention murder. The New Testament, I think, fleshes this out so well for us. It teaches us what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. And the life of Jesus who fulfilled the law makes this path clear and shows us the way in which we should walk. But I thought we would close with some words of Paul from Romans chapter 12. I found Romans 12 to be a pretty good commentary on what Jesus is, is saying here in Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And so let's just hear these words from Romans 12, 9 through 21 as we close. Let love To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus that get right down into the heart of our weakness and our sin. Lord, we see how the law exposes our anger. The law exposes the way that we devalue other people created in your image, the way that we puff ourselves up in pride. Lord, we confess that we have done that this week. We've done that all our lives. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. And we ask that you'd place us on this path of of valuing others, of seeing your image in all people and not only not being angry with them and not insulting them, but seeking to love them. Lord, we've been lazy and seeking reconciliation. Help us to be quick to do it. Help us to be those that are the first to act, the first to seek to make restitution, the first to seek reconciliation, the first to ask for forgiveness. Lord, we do it all in the strength that you provide. We do it all because of what Christ has done. We do it all because you are the one who has first loved us. And so we love you and we seek to love all others created in your image. We ask by your spirit that you would lead us into this righteousness for our joy and for your glory. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.